Julio, thanks for coming to the Judge McCall podcast. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you, man. Hi, uh, same here, same here. Uh, we spoke a couple of months ago and we were just chatting about that. Um, uh, there were a couple of things we really wanted to talk about. And uh, you are a very successful entrepreneur. You're quite young. Uh, you do all this for Mozambique and now you're in South Africa. Maybe you, you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, how, how did this, what really motivated you to become an entrepreneur so early in your life? Sure. So it all started for me when I was just about to graduate from university and I realized I didn't have a job afterwards, like many people. And one of my friends, he was already an entrepreneur doing some transportation business and he wanted to go into developing short-term courses. So he had all the entrepreneurial experience, but he knew nothing about academia per se or knowledge-based businesses. But there was my jam. So I was a lecturer assistant in university to help pay for my uh, my, scholarship, my scholarship and my fees in the, in the university I was studying in. And my parents were teachers. So education and, you know, knowledge-based stuff was, is really my jam. And so we joined forces and we started this company out of scratch, two young people. And I remember we really went over what we thought it was right because I had no experience developing courses. My experience at the time was just delivering courses. And I remember I had to Google, you know, how to build a session plan for a workshop and stuff like that. Um, but then in three months, we trained almost 600 people in total. And for you to think this is like a startup that no one heard of and sort of like the key of our success early in the stage is that we were quite doing a lot of interactions with the market. So, you know, we did all the research piece. We asked students what they wanted to learn. We kept their contact details. So when we launched the courses, we sent them SMS and all that stuff. Um, and the energy was just cool and vibe. I mean, I was giving teachings and classes like eight hours a day and I didn't want them to be boring. So I really made sure that it was interactive and fun and people really appreciated. Um, from that place, back in the days in Mozambique, business mentors, advisors, there was not even words we were used to. It. So it was at a time in the business where I felt I was making good decisions, but I wasn't making great decisions. And I just didn't know how I could make that leap. So it made sense to me to get a job while my co-founder was still running the business. And that's what I did. I joined a Mozambican company called Idea Lab. They are major in supporting entrepreneurs in a more of ecosystem level. So they work with different stakeholders to support entrepreneurs and they work with entrepreneurs directly with trainings, with events, business advisory. And I joined them to work on marketing. And then because of my background, I became a business advisor and mentor to the startups and a trainer. And two years into that business, they invited me to launch the very first business incubation program in Mozambique. So that for me was huge because I was literally the generation that heard that, well, you should start businesses, you should do stuff, but we just don't know how, how young people, you know, we just don't know how to do, to do those things. And I was given the chance to be in a place where I could help other young people um, to follow their dreams. So that was super cool. And in two years, the, their business grow. And for me, what was growing was this sense that I should be able to do more. Like I wanted to do more. I wanted to explore the world. I just didn't know how back, back again. And it really went home when I was in Bahrain in the Middle East. We were doing a speaking engagement there, the Global Entrepreneurship Congress, which is one of the biggest entrepreneurship events in the world. And after the speaking, um, this bunch of Arab guys, they come to me and like, Julio, can you just have like a small talk with you after you know, the big session? We really want to get deep into some stuff. I went there, we talked with them. And I remember the guy told me, like, Julio, now I know what I need to do with my life and my business. Like, I have, I'm crystal clear. Deep down, I was just feeling empty. 
Like I was literally just showing up. I was so depleted because I knew I wanted to do more and I wasn't doing it. That it was really starting to, you know, down way down in my productivity and stuff. So that led me to launch my current business, Fair Knowledge International, where we focus on helping entrepreneurs and executives directly by offering power coaching, um, training, and speaking engagements. And for the corporates, we offer them knowledge consultancy. So we help them harness the power of knowledge of their people so they can start growing their business from a place that really feels good to them. There was a very long story, the shortest I could tell you. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> this seems that, that there's a lot that's been going on. And then, you know, you have your own venture, you already worked with an incubator, and now you're doing your yeah. second venture. So this is awesome. Um, what, what I think a lot including me and a lot of people are interested in that is, you know, Africa is kind of as a, as a, as a bigger destination. And then Southern yeah. Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa is always hailed as this enormous potential. And uh, mm-hmm. we, in terms of investment opportunities and in terms of what knowledge based um, business models could do um, for the, the large, um, the large population. And I had Daniel Gross on um, who runs a completely virtual incubator uh, pioneer. And uh, he's had um, a lot of investments that he did um, in South, um, Southern Africa, uh, but also including Nigeria. So there's a lot of potential. We sometimes, it's, it's hard to grasp this, right? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a big population. It's connectivity is increasing quite nicely. Um, the last time I was in Mozambique, what was interesting for me was I was in Maputo. And uh-huh. most of the internet connections I could get at hotels or coffee shops was really slow. But then I just yeah. tapped into LTE and it was like 100 Mbit everywhere, all <laughs> in, the, in the countryside. I'm like, holy smokes. So I didn't see that coming. I was super fast and was super cheap. It was like a dollar for a gigabyte. Anyway, so yeah. there, there seems to be a slightly different way um, that each country obviously goes. And maybe it's a different kind of connectivity. What I'm trying to get to, when you look at the opportunities that you see for, for entrepreneurs, how does this stack up? And I know you've been awarded um, one of the most um, prominent entrepreneurs in Africa, I think a couple of years ago. Give us an insight where you feel these are, these opportunities are real and they may be just made up. <laughs> For sure. I, I guess we need to start taking a step back and just put like Africa in a bit more of context for um, for our listeners. So the first thing is that when you look at the, you know, the world map, you see this huge chunk of land altogether that is Africa. And unlike other continents like, you know, uh, Europe or Americas or North America or South America, even though it's a continent all together, we couldn't be more different, you know, even though we have so many similarities. So that's the first point. Um, and each country has uh, slightly different nuances in terms of cultures and what people value and what type of business can flourish. Um, but something that I found that's quite different from African markets than we have from any other markets, it's how mobile our money is. I mean, if you look at countries like Zimbabwe, they really don't have yet money anymore and they just use mobile money. And mobile money, it's not like you transferring stuff on PayPal, it's the money that is associated with your mobile phone. So you can transact using your mobile phone. That's a huge difference from the rest of the world when it comes down to Africa. And hence, yeah, the you original have... Bitcoin, right? It came from Kenya, right? So the, yeah, yeah, from the, Kenya. The first, yeah. I forgot the name to be, what is it called? In Kenya, Embo, forget the name. Um, I forgot, it's but in really Mozambique and Tanzania, it's Impeza right now. Okay, so, and yeah, it's yeah. owned by Vodacom. 
or yeah. Vodafone in other yeah. countries. I think that's the one, yeah. The original Bitcoin or the, the, the African yeah. PayPal, so to speak. <laughs> it is. It literally is. And I guess a lot of foreigners, they sort of like get stuck with that. Like, how is it possible? Um, that's one of the main differences. And the other difference is in terms of logistics, even though it's our whole continent and you will think that, well, it will be so cheap and easy to travel and, you know, travel only people, but also, um, you know, American merchandise or staff travel around the continent, that's not the case. So there is a lot of opportunities and challenges within logistics per se. But to really go to your point, Africa is literally the land of opportunities. What you really need to do to tap into those opportunities is start looking at them from the lenses of the local people, right? So Africa has this whole story of, you know, being colonized by different uh, European countries and then people finding their independence back again. And then with the globalization, we're trying to sort of like align the rest of the world. It's very important that as uh, someone that comes from outside Africa or even just a different country within the continent of Africa, that you allow yourself to have the empathy with the locals and understand what they're coming from and what really matters to them. And they will say it's the main reason why a lot of um, foreign investments, they fail when they come to Africa, is that they try to replicate, you know, either based on the weather, because the weather in some parts of Mozambique can be compared with California, and they think that the same way people operate in California in the US is going to be the same way they operate in Mozambique. So no, there are opportunities, but really look at them from the perspective of the locals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, it's interesting that you mentioned the weather. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's, I think that's, when you think about um, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about impact investing. When you, uh -huh. when you talk about pure agriculture investments, I think those are something, and when you, when you think of enabling local farmers, um, have uh, organic products, that's, those, are, those are investment ideas that are very popular. I don't feel they are, they're not easy to pull off, let's put it this way, because of the issues you just described. It's possible, right, and there is stories, I, I know there are stories in Malawi, for instance, but it's hard to scale them. So those you end up with relatively small farms and it's a patchwork and logistics is a huge issue of getting anything out. For, for, for instance, um, I, was, I was dreaming to become um, um, a nuts farmer in Malawi. So I talked to a couple of um, people in, in Malawi and the, they have those, what is that called? The um, uh, really high-end nuts. Oh my gosh, I forgot about those. Anyway, so there's, the a, nut. No, there's another one. Um, it's it's uh, grown in Hawaii. Um, Macadamia? Macadamia, yeah. Sorry. Couldn't come up with the name. Um, <laughs> no worries. So you, there's, there's a big internal market for macadamia nuts. So there's a bunch of farms already do this. It's, it's, very, it's very fertile ground. But getting those macadamia nuts, and it's apparently extremely cheap to grow them, I mean, compared to mm -hmm. anywhere else in the world. But getting those nuts out was incredibly difficult because there's even just small quantities like um, FedEx or UPS, which are present, it was a logistical nightmare. So sooner or later, I gave up. Through, I mean, you can get them for one fourth of the price that they retail for if, if you have even small quantities and they're high quality. So if something is missing in between, right? This missing link is something you, you just look at um, certain certain variables and then, well, I gave up being becoming a nuts farmer <laughs> in Malawi. Maybe this was a good oh. idea or maybe not. I still love the idea. But, you know, there's also something worth mentioning. So for those who doesn't know, Malawi is a country that sits almost in the center of Africa. So there is no, like, straight link from any port or shore to Malawi, unless it's the Lake Malawi. And it's a huge lake, but then it's like it's a lake. It's not the sea. You don't have connections to other places in the world. Yeah. They're making hard... Um, 
for you know for logistic companies to really work on that's one and also there is the double political tension and i guess the lake malawi is a great example so it's one lake that in malawi is called lake malawi in mozambique where i'm from it's lake niasa which is the province that uh, the lake sits on and in tanzania it's lake tanganyika so there is a lot of this um ownership over different african um assets i'll say and sometimes it can be hard for all the countries to agree uh, one of my clients is working to build a railway that was supposed to connect Malawi, Mozambique, and Tanzania. But even that, we don't have a you know a railway com, you know uh, linking the entirety of Mozambique, for instance, in the same country. Um, so yeah, there are challenges in that, but also there are opportunities on how we can be creative in doing those um, building those bridges and building those links. Yeah. Well, one thing I feel that 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 strikes me as as coming with great potential and relatively limited challenges is digital content, right? So the internet connectivity has gone up quite a bit. Uh, the last time I was in, in, in Accra in Ghana, I probably had the fastest internet ever, like three, 400 Mbit in any random location. I'm like, holy smokes, what is this, right? <laughs> and because they probably have this, this new under um, sea cable that just goes into, goes through on the location where Accra is and it's close yeah. to the sea. So that was great to see. And I was, I was, and it's a very it's an english-speaking population um with very high levels of english proficiency um and i was thinking well you can have you know starting from call centers but also producing content we all think about the youtube world right we think about yeah. um, premium content that you can actually sell i thought this is this is easy because well all you need really is is fast internet access and from then on you basically just you, you keep going from there and find the premium model obviously you can do this for the local market but with with um, you know the connectivity, you can also do this for the non-local market, and that seems to be where you know India and Bangladesh is really taking off. They 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 have been doing this for twenty years, and they seem to be successful. I don't know how billions, how big these businesses have gotten, but they seem enormous to me from, from what is visible to me on the internet. It's not something I see so much that has taken off yet that might change or is already changing in in coastal communities in Africa. Yeah, 100%. And I see a rising of knowledge-based or really just online essence-based businesses. I'm going to call it that, that way. And I actually have examples. So here in South Africa, there is this comedian called Lasizwe. So he managed to, he has a million and a half followers on Instagram, if I'm not mistaken. So basically, his whole comedy is around the different tribes in uh, in South Africa. And the main ones being the whites, the coloreds, and the black. And he always have like, you know, how will a black mom react? How will a, mom, a white mom react and stuff like that? And it's very relatable in South Africa and some of other African countries. Um, but he has grown so much in such a short period of time because of the digital, as you're mentioning. But then I also got a chance to meet um, Elsa Majimbo from Kenya. So she now has 2 million followers and she collaborated with people like Naomi Campbell, big brands, Valentino and stuff. And her like comedy is more around you know people not showing up on time and more of like international stuff so that even though her and lasizia did start in quite on the same time um because one is like targeting the world you know more general stuff she was able to grow a bigger audience so there is this growth happening there and associated with that there is a growth of personal brands and knowledge-based companies happening as well and i guess the message 
challenge or where entrepreneurs usually struggle here in Africa is deciding if they want to stay local or if they want to go national or global. Because unlike many other countries in the world, at least in Europe or in uh, Americas, we don't have just one language in African countries, right? We have many languages and usually one or two are the official languages. So well, there's usually where entrepreneurs of, struggle. has a ton of languages too. Right, right. But, but what about... Yeah. I think the, the, for me, the general um, issue oftentimes seems to be, and that's always the issue, obviously, in, in, in a content-based economy, is how do you monetize it, right? How do you, how do you mm -hmm. develop it from a, from a free product into a freemium product or a decent premium product? And that's always really hard. That takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of resources to get there, right? Because you, you need to challenge. You need to, you need to know what customers want at what point of time so they're eager and interested to buy into it. Yeah. And, um, you know, Netflix is, is probably the best example they early on um, were bidding with a lots of money for those for those content rights to stream in different countries. And they had it per country and then they changed it and then they didn't want to go international and then they only wanted to go international. It changed every couple of years, right? And yeah. uh, this is a good example where obviously it's 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 foreign content and it's it's very expensive content, but still it's a good example where they also changed um, the way what they charge. So it's about $10, $14 a month in the US, but I know in, in France and Mexico, it's only like $5. I don't actually know what it is in Kenya, but it's, they, they figured out a way to, to price it for each individual country. And uh, yeah. that's obviously the, uh, you, you could start local, you know, if, if obviously nobody can bid for Hollywood rights, no, none of us maybe Elon Musk can help us. But, uh, there is always content that's that's bringing people are ready to pay for if you find that audience right so if you find an audience that has enough of a pain point so to speak that doesn't have too high enough opportunity cost so they actually pay for your content yeah and i will say that in the end really it become comes down to the revenue model you want to have in your business so you know you can go on models where you charge the the beneficiary the end user but you can also have sponsors uh, or corporate clients that pay you so that you can give your product and service for people that actually need but cannot afford it so you can be quite creative and i think this point ties back with your investment point uh, because something that i found especially with uh, foreigners trying to come to invest in africa is the sense of is the knowledge and the trust on the knowledge people are presenting to them, you know, and being able to really rely on the partner because usually you cannot fly in and out every time or, um, you know, there are language barriers and it is just the local context that as a foreigner, you don't know, but the locals might know um, and they might be able to build the bridges to help you out. So I guess, yeah, it comes down to the revenue model and how you just monetize your trust in general, you know, yeah. the social capital you are bringing and you want to bring in your company. Not everyone can be like Mark Zuckerberg um, and launch a couple of balloons, right, to bring the internet to to Africa. And you know, when you look at it now, it looked it looked kind of it looked good on, on on paper, right? It was a good PR stunt. But when we now when we now look at Facebook, it's this this weird um, spying machine that he wanted to get to everyone, right? Because it's Facebook traffic that he wants. He doesn't care about the other services. That he yeah, and being honest, man, you're opening a conversation. I was actually talking about how Instagram is uh, disrupting markets. Uh, because usually people look at, you know, governments disrupting markets, developing governments, you know, from Europe coming to Africa to disrupt the market again. And we forget how corporations do it. And I was talking about if you have picture two entrepreneurs, like doing the same business, let's say they are in photography and they all have 2,000 followers in December 2020, the entrepreneur in the US, let's say he's in Florida, he get access to reels, he's able to crazy expand his reach 
um, not just in a local level, but in an international level, that will probably mean that he will have more followers and probably more money after six months, while the entrepreneur in Mozambique didn't have access to real in the first place. And I understand the difference or the the tailoring made by location, but we are talking about a digital product. And what's the worst is then when the entrepreneur in Mozambique has access to reels, he won't have that magnified exposure anymore, right? So literally you see a corporation completely disrupting international markets, even though it's a digital company. So therefore location shouldn't be a problem unless the person doesn't have access to internet, but still you see it happening. Yeah, it's, it's um, that's, a, that's a really good topic. When you when we see these big platforms, it's obviously it's it's kind of they're all made like a pyramid scheme, right? So you, you want to be mm. in early, um, and then you you have the biggest benefit, and then as longer as later you come, it's more like you're 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 that consumer. So you're you're not getting the two way traffic uh, that you want. It's basically you just you you're liking someone else's post. Nobody will like your post, right? So it's for the for the narcissists. You want to be really early in that game, and that eventually pays off. You know this. It, narcissism entrepreneurship maybe that's a little too, um, too little too harsh but <laughs> building a personal brand you you want to be early in those markets and that often this can be a challenge i think it's also a cultural challenge right so um i grew up in germany and they are generally they rather be late adopters so they don't want to be early adopters in anything they, they're good at being late adopters and then really excelling at building perfect products yeah. But if you are with this mindset, then it's it's not good to be early because the product hasn't doesn't have this maturity yet. So as an entrepreneur, it's really difficult to sell early adopter products. It's basically impossible. So say we have the the same the same product as the same example you just made, and um, say it's a software product and targets early adopter early adopter companies or or consumers. It's really tricky to get an initial critical mass in Europe. It's almost impossible. And I think the same probably applies to a lot of African markets. But the same product and the same sales pitch will get you, I don't know, a million customers in the U.S. because there's so many early adopters here, right? And they will That's test true. it, they will like it, or they think it's crap, and then you will never go anywhere. But at least you have that potential, and then you roll it out globally. But you don't have that option. I think a lot of Israelis companies have found that niche. They develop their tech based in Israel because they know how to develop tech, but they know there's no, it's a very small country, and it's they're not exactly super early adopters from a marketing perspective they are in terms of hardcore technology so what they've done they've basically just said we're never going to market it here we just have the back end here and we just do all the marketing in the us and if it works it works in the us and then we roll it out in israel so even if yeah. a lot of products developed in israel are not even available well unless you have a vpn there's always a way around it but they're not directly marketed to israeli customers and i totally relate with that i mean my first hundred coaching customers, they are all from US, Canada, and the UK. Uh, I mean, for many reasons, the early adoption is one of them, but also the, you know, the the buying power, right? Like people in the US and Europe, they're using dollars and euros. And the months that I feel my work is being honored, I mean, it will probably take six months for the regular Mozambican to be able to afford a one-hour session with me, right? So even as an entrepreneur, I had to work around my mindset and understanding that, you know, if, I, if I'm able to charge what I really deserve from my high-paying clients, I can then build initiatives that really support the entrepreneurs that need support, um, but they cannot afford it. So that's one that's super important that you mentioned that. And when it comes down to Africa, I feel... Most people just assume that people are not early innovations because they don't want to be early innovation, which is not true. Usually what happens is that there is so much risk associated with that early innovation that I actually prefer to see it validated and, you know, and 
proof, bulletproofed before I can um, I can afford to take the risk. It is actually something that I do my best to teach entrepreneurs is, is um, even when it comes down to investing. If you're coming from a background where you feel you cannot take that much risk, don't gamble about you know on how much you can make really choose your affordable loss right so i usually say to entrepreneurs like you have an idea you want to validate it how much are you willing to lose let's say you try it out and you figure out that the business doesn't work for you or doesn't work at all how much are you willing to invest and lose chances are you're not going to lose that money you're going to learn something from me that sometimes even make the money back um but just having that mindset that it's not about how much you're going to win, but how much you're willing to lose. Just give you that peace of mind to start making the steps to break the poverty cycle. Does it make sense to you? Yes. I mean, yes. Um, obviously, that's, <laughs> I think that that's that's why it's a good topic you're, you're leading us into is, you know, what I think entrepreneurship has gotten a lot of this, the, the word entrepreneurship, people immediately think of the Silicon Valley type entrepreneur, right? It needs yeah. billions of venture capital, and this venture yeah. capital obviously is, is a very trend following. So they invest in the tour trend and they want to get out of this investment as soon as possible, definitely within the next two or three years, if they can, right? So it's, it's kind of the soft bank idea that you have to have this massive $1 billion minimum invest. It's kind of their <laughs> minimum now, right? And they can yeah. invest up to $10 billion in the startup. Like think about WeWork. Nobody knows why they invest that much money, but they must have a plan, right? So someone has a plan at SoftBank. I hope. I don't know. We hope, we hope people <laughs> but they, they can do whatever they want with their money but i'm i'm trying to say this to, to what um, i agree much more with nasa talib's description of entrepreneurship which is really the individual risk taker so what we want is and as as high as possible ideally 20 30 40 50 percent population so an enormous way bigger than what we see right now in the description of entrepreneurship and we don't want necessarily uh, the company that has hundreds of million dollars of venture capital or any any kind of capital infused into it for me, that's not a startup. What I want is the entrepreneur who goes out, just as you said that earlier, who goes out, validates an idea, conviction of his or hers, and then runs this against the market and sees what comes out of it. And yes, most of them will still fail. This will not change. But this risk that someone took will solve a, big, a small part of that equation, but it adds up to a bigger quad bigger bigger equation for the whole population and the whole population benefits because they then realize oh well this is how this is how good this specific thing can be solved right so when we think about how good digital solutions have gotten how good um, the iphone has gotten this is possible but iphone's maybe not a good example but <laughs> because it's too centralized but if if we all go out and do our do contribute to the betterment of the world, right, of society, then it really ends up. So this, this wave of entrepreneurship multipl multiplies throughout the society. The problem, obviously, is how do you convince yourself to take this six-month off, this 12-month, right, to say, yeah. well, you know, I'm already living in squalor, so to speak, so I, I really can't afford to do this. But I think this is really, it doesn't really matter how, it's, it's a routine mindset, right? It's, it doesn't really matter how poor you are, how you can afford it. It's, Okay, there is something on the other side that A, helps me, but also B, has a huge upside. And this is why I should start now. And I think this is so difficult to get this motivation pinpointed for entrepreneurs. And I often feel the, 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 the public initiatives, like government initiatives, they don't really do much about that. Like they want to, but they don't really, it's important to have the opportunities. It's, you, you, wanna, you wanna look more to the upside than, okay, you're covered for the next six months. Um, it, that's my personal point of view. Um, that's obviously yeah. very difficult to instill in people. A hundred percent. And being honest with you, uh, you know, 
all my work is based on the concept that success is 80% internal game and 20% external game. So the 80% you have your identity, your mindset and your energy. And only then you work on the strategies. You're going to change the context, which is the uh, the 20%. And I like to give this laptop example to people. It's like when you want to buy a computer, you get to choose between a Windows-based or a Mac-based computer, right? That's the identity of a computer, the hardware and the software. But then if you buy the brand new MacBook on Earth, you still need to install some programs to make it run and work for you and do whatever you want, like Adobe Photoshop, Zoom, whatever that is. And that's your mindset. It's all the beliefs that you have and all the programs that are running in your mind that allows you to show up in the way that you want to show up. And then going back to the laptop example, if we have the most expensive laptop in the world with all the premium programs installed, eventually you need to connect it to a power source. Otherwise it will die out. And that's how you see a lot of entrepreneurs trying and going back and giving up and try it again and giving up. Um, but the thing is, if you work on upgrading your identity and updating your mindset so you can start shifting your energy, to create the strategies and implement them becomes way more easier compared if you didn't have those uh, that pre-work done before. And I always say, like, everyone knows that they, if they want to lose fat uh, and beat muscle, they need to do three things. Sleep right, eat right, um, and exercise right. And if you grab your phone, you're going to find a professional to help you out. So why is not everyone in their optimum fitness level. I was asking the same thing when I was managing the business incubator where we had, we actually had pretty good success rates like 80% of people increasing revenue and at least 70%. But then my question was, what was wrong with the other ones? They didn't made it. You know, they had a great idea. They were actually showing up. What was wrong with them? And then only when I found that is all this mindset piece that is missing when it comes down to entrepreneurship that gets people blocked. If you go and Google like entrepreneur, like images, you're going to see people on their suits, you know, like in New York, as you mentioned, in Silicon Valley. And that's not the true of what really being an entrepreneur really means. And a lot of my work, especially with early stage entrepreneurs, it just break all those false belief systems and really start, you know, helping them create their own definition of entrepreneurship and understand how they can play full out. Um, and also associated with the concept of you need to quit your job to start your business. And that's not true, right? Especially if you're starting out, you do want to be accountable, um, you know, and responsible with your time and your money. And uh, like 90, 99% of the times when you start a business, it doesn't need a full-time employee. You know, even if you put all your hours, you still need to give the market some time to give you feedback so you get to interact and keep moving forward. Yeah, I, I like what you just said. I think this is very spot on, <laughs> very motivational. It's, it's you know, with, with, when we think, what, what I hope we're going to see is really 9, billions, 9 billion people, 9 billion brains to generate one unique idea and market that within their niche. And we hope, hopefully we're going to see this in the next 50 or 100 years. And in the end, what, what happens is you do a succession of different projects or events. You know, Alexander Bard would call them events. So it's the event is, is, is less than a company. So the company is, you know, you have HR, you hire people, and it's all this nonsense that nobody wants to do anymore. So an event is you create something that can be like an idea, it can be a product, it can be a website, it can be an app, whatever that is, and you get traction either. And generally, it's it's some viral kind of growth, right? People, for whatever reason, love what you're doing. Now, the hit rate is pretty low. You cannot assume just because you, you're smart and intelligent, you're going to have 100% <laughs> hit rate. It's never going to happen, right? No. Um, there's tons of other people going going for the same same market. But if everyone just does a succession of these events in his life, in her life, and 
what, what's so cool about this is it, it will be going viral if it makes sense, if, it, if it, it's productive, right? If it saves a problem that's real for very, very low cost. And we would have access to 9 billion super, app, 9 billion super apps, right? That's someone else, bro. That's kind of in my mind. Now, this won't be apps, right? There's can be AI, can be any kind of algorithm, can be any kind of backend software. But if you get to this level to never have to repeat the same thing and uh, the same workflow that we do every day that we are all bored of, um, and now we have this problem in the U.S. that, that many menial labor jobs, there's just no labor anymore, right? So this is very mm. difficult. And I feel like, well, this is a good thing, right? I want people to get out of this and get into something creative. Obviously, we still, we, we probably have to solve with automation. But we would all be so much better off because we all would make so much more money if we, we adopt this mindset. In my mind, obviously, you, you've got to get some payoff. That's obviously the problem, right? So with all these, say you do 100 of these <laughs> events in your life, right? So one a year. But if your payoff comes on average of the 50, what do you do in the first 50 years? Are you really, you're going to be really poor because you're literally no income. So, and I understand that you can keep your job and that's, that's, uh, that's great. I think this is great advice. You don't have to do this full time, but you have to come up with a hundred unique ideas that could become a product. And I think this is what we should teach our children. And this is what, and the market is global immediately. So that's, that's, I think it's this wonderful incentive. You said that earlier, if you have enough bandwidth you, you have the same market access in, I don't know, in Mombasa than anyone in Silicon Valley. There's literally no oh, difference. Yeah. And that's such a great incentive. Like you, you, the, the millions of dollars are right in front of your keyboard, so to speak, <laughs> right? It's obviously there's more to it. It's not that easy. But that's the mindset that I would love that our children have and our young adults. And then I think they have this with Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin, but it's a mania, it's a bubble. But that's where they're all going to because they say, well, why don't I buy some calls on Tesla because I just download Robinhood. It's five hundred dollars. Yeah. Maybe it's going to make me a million dollars. Maybe not, but that's okay. A hundred percent. And I guess the main thing for me is as we're changing um, mindsets of individuals. It's like one of the reasons why I'm so obsessed over power is that my understanding is that the world is not a better place yet because there's so many people struggling with their own relationship with power, right? So you have people in positions of power, but they're not in tune with their own power. So they're doing this horrible stuff, trying to protect themselves and have a safe life, completely ruin over the life of countries and nations, um, sometimes even entire continents because of that egos, you know, egoistic and fragile um, state they are right now, right? That's one thing. And the other thing that I always say to my entrepreneurs is that you need three pillars to build your legacy, whatever that means like for you, right? If you're talking about long-term or generational wealth or just living a life you love, you need to focus on your income, in your impact and in your integrity. Meaning that, and most people think that it's either one or the other, which is not, but you need to have your bills paid as a human being, your basic needs, and you have to have all the money um, that you need to build the life that you wanna have. But the thing is, that money most probably gonna come if you are really in tune and connected with your impact you want to create in the world, right? As you're mentioning, how you wanna change people's life. And it could be your local um, village, it could be your town, your city, your country, internationally now with the internet. But as long as you're connected with that impact and you start realizing that the more impact you do, this, this should really grant you more money so that you can extend your in, impact, your income and your impact. And then you need to do those two things, remaining in integrity with yourself. And people think that integrity is just about, you know, not doing the wrong thing, um, you know, don't fall into corruption, don't cheat on a business alliance or something like that, which is true, but it goes beyond that. So to me, integrity speaks about you playing full out. You have this deep 
dream and deep, deep desire to impact people start showing up accordingly. You know, that's really being in integrity with yourself. It's, you know, you are lacking, you know, you are BS in your way, then stop doing that and start doing what you know it's right. You know, start playing full out and start really harnessing all the amazing stuff that is around you to help you grow and thrive. Yeah, I think you, the three I's sound really, sound really interesting, wasn't it? But then we have the three P's in marketing. I always forget what I <laughs> product, yeah, product something. Yeah. Um, no, I think there's a, you're absolutely spot on. You know, the integrity is really, for me, something you're in it for the long term. Like, not the, the event that you produce might not be long term, but you, you want to do something that long term helps as many people as possible. And I do think, and, you know, you might correct me with, with this, I do feel it's good to think globally, like to think about global issues and solve them with something very local, like with a specific piece of the puzzle. There's this old saying, you know, think, think global, think globally and act local. Act local, yeah. Yeah, act local. Uh, I think it still applies, but it's, it's obviously to, to produce something. And I think this, is, this is, leads us to another phenomenon that we see is that if you behave in that way, and I think we're all drawn to this way of, of leading our life. I think it's already happening for, for a couple of us, not for everyone, but for, for a lot of us. What happens is to, to identify something that where you think you do something better than anyone else on the planet. You have mm -hmm. to download a lot of knowledge, right? So you will spend a lot of time just in research, constant download of YouTube, whatever, whatever you research, just because you have to find that last little bit that you can add on GitHub, for instance, that last little line of code that makes everything so much better and then you could potentially transform into an event. So what, what happens to is that you, you spend 18 hours a day in this virtual world because otherwise you cannot identify these things, I feel. They don't just come down to you while you're going through the garden. I mean, maybe it does, but, you know, you have to do the hard work before that. Yeah, there are two things on what you said. Um, so the first is, if there is one thing COVID taught us is that we are more connected than we think we are. So again, if you are thinking about starting a business or if you're already starting a business, literally there is no reason why you shouldn't aim for the whole world. Of course, there is all the steps you need to take to make it happen, but really the world is your playground. Um, and I guess the second point on, you know, people having their business and stuff, mo most people that I found, they struggle with this concept of having to commit with a business idea for their entire lives, pretty much with the job thing, right? And I always say people like, you're getting it all backwards. The number one thing you should have like crystal clarity around is your purpose. And I know it sounds like scary and daunting your purpose, but if you identify your why, you realize that, okay, so in my case, my why, it's all about power and making sure that we remember our power, we step in on it, and we help others doing the same, right? Now, that's my why. But what I can do to really manifest that purpose, it could be a million different things. I could be doing what I'm doing, being you know, a power coach, but I could be a nurse in Mexico, making sure that people have the most healthy environment to recover and come back to their power. You know what I mean? I could have been selling street food in Bali, the food that is really real food and is healthy for you and give you the energy for you to show up in power. So your what can always be flexible, you know, depending on where you are in your life and what you're really passionate about at the moment, but your why will remain the same. And then the how is that collaboration that you were mentioning, you know, that interaction between other people, that downloads and all that stuff that allows you to really go into the steps you need to take to make your business successful. But it all starts by you accepting, embracing, and choosing that that's going to be your purpose and you are committing to that. And the research period is just incredible. The more you know, 
the more you will, have, you'll be able to have information. I always think about the what as a collaboration between you and the universe, right? It's there is what you know and what the universe has to offer, and you find where those two overlap. This is usually what you should be doing right now. Okay, it's getting pretty deep there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. I get that a lot. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, we just are. We already arrived at the universe. Um, hey, before that, uh, uh -huh. I want to talk about the universe. So that's that's good. Uh, one thing I keep pondering about. So this is my thesis, right? This is this is how I want okay. these nine billion brains to be interconnected into in the in the hive brain, right? Okay. We're we already on that quite quite a bit into this development, but what I'm seeing on the other side is, so for a long time, these things it kind of works like like acting, right? So you go to LA, you you do crazy shit um, that you're really not proud of a couple of years later, but you just want to get in, right? You want to get in, yeah. you get this role, and they say no, you, you don't have a you don't have a name, so we don't pay you anything. And you're like, oh, what do you mean? And they said, yeah, you, you, you use it as a platform, and you're like, okay, whatever. But yeah. you're gonna get some royalties, right? So if this show gets on syndicated TV, you might make I don't know five thousand dollars every month for the rest of your life, um, and it's a big if, right? If it's not a hit, then you won't, won't get anything. But you can tell people, well, I played an important role. Yeah. And but this is how the world will look like, right? So the the there's a cash flow problem for this for my development. Um, so yeah. we can talk about UBI. A lot of people talk about this, and then the other problem that I see a little bit is. When we talk about an economy, it should be a resource allocation business, right? So money, mm. pro productive capacity, um, labor, think about Karl Marx a little bit. It is actually not run like Karl Marx realized no. in the end of what, what, what came out of it, but what the early stage of Marx's analysis was, right? So how do we allocate this? And we do allocate it right now by price. So whoever pays me the most, this is what I'm going to do, right? But if mm -hmm. I develop my own idea and I know I can only monetize it in the future, maybe five years, maybe five months, I don't know. How, how does this resource allocation feedback loop actually work, right? Because there's not someone I can go to and say, oh, how much do you pay me for that per hour or per month? You can't, nobody can give you a price for this, right? So how do you, how do you, how do you balance this one where you say, well, we feel this is really good for the, for the universe, for the human society, but we can't price it right now. An economist or other people can't price it because this has a lot of potential, but right now it has zero cash flow. So how do we price these opportunities and how do we also, once we say, oh, we go give you UBI, once, how do we stabilize this? It could be a global UBI, right? How do we stabilize this that people are actually doing what we want them to do and not just slacking, right? Or maybe slacking is good. That, that, that's another assumption. <laughs> so let's start with the whole, I have this crazy idea, but the world is not ready for it right now, or there is no pricing system about it right now. And I found, especially with African entrepreneurs, right? There is a lot of Bitcoin is actually the great example. It's a great example. So, in many countries, Bitcoin is starting to get a more uh, a legislation around it. And you know, after Elon Musk announced that it will be a set in Bitcoin payments, and other companies are doing so, Bitcoin is it, it become it became more of a mainstream type of thing. But for instance, in Mozambique, there is no financial law whatsoever around cryptocurrency in general. And I remember I was supporting an entrepreneur that uh, he has a lot of experience with Bitcoin. He has a whole background in financing. So he's like the best person I knew that could help you make the crypto investments. And he was like, there is just no legislation, like at all. I don't even know how can I can register my company to begin with, to be legal and actually do uh, be able 
so they can actually be able to have like bigger clients like other corporations and other organizations. And the exercise I do I did with him is like, okay, if we shift your what just a little bit, you're not necessarily a, a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency advisor right now. What can you do that still aligns with you, what you value and that you can start monetizing right now? So we created this entire business model where he will help for um, courses, basic, you know, around cryptocurrency. And actually he made contracts with some universities. So in their financial um, lecture, they will have him come in and give a lecture around, you know, cryptocurrencies and the new financial system that's coming up. So if you are flexible, again, on your what, you can create pilots, prototypes that you can charge for and charge actually decent money depending on what you're doing. Um, they will allow you to not only just be able to pay your rent right now and pay your bills right now, but start building those foundations from when your big dream is possible for the world. Does it make sense? The first part. Yes. I mean, yes. I mean, some businesses definitely have, you can change the business model around and you come, you come up with a different revenue stream. I think this is a great idea. Yeah. But what, what usually happens is you get, you get sucked into these big platform economies. And I, I'm yeah. always a little skeptical of the YouTube economy, the Instagram economy, whatever. <laughs> because, yes, you build your personal brand, and that's great to an extent, right? But I, don't, yeah. I think it's a weird shortcut of this. This is what I have in mind. It's, A, you're kind of, you're not honest with your audience when you're an influencer because they never know <laughs> if this is real or, or you just do it for the money. So this is really weird. You destroy your brand once you once you go too far commercial. And the other problem is YouTube can always say, oh, you did something bad. And then you're gone, right? You're gone from Apple. You're gone from the... You, you're just gone. I mean, they can always switch you off. Now They cancel you. It's literally yeah, the cancel, cancel culture. You. When they cancel people all the time, right? If they don't make money with them, they cancel them. And I mean, so what? They should be able to do to cancel them. But as a, the platform economies, I think all the upside is with the platform. You, well, yeah. the, the, the average upside for you can still work out beautifully that and these platforms have a place. But I feel for entrepreneurship, just becoming an Uber driver is not entrepreneurship. I mean, there is entrepreneurial no. qualities in it, right? But because Uber has so much more data than you can ever gather, even if you're the smartest driver in the whole network, this light years ahead of you. So it's I want to move people a little bit out of these platforms and use them for what they're worth. But this is a really these platforms gain people's minds, and that's the problem. And well, people it's people's problem because they're not smart enough to realize this, right? And understandably, but this that you you run with YouTube, you run against huge AIs, and you, you don't have a chance unless you have the right mindset. Yeah, that's for sure. And for me, this sort of speaks more around mindset again, and. Specific around long-term mindset. Something that I found, especially with most African cultures, it's not something that is ingrained in our mindset. You know, like in Africa, children as are usually seen as wealth. And it's like whatever you couldn't make it for yourself, your children will probably be able to, right? And it's like a long reason, or there's a long list of reasons why uh, most Africans think like that. Because it's like, you know, if I survived a colonialism, um, if myself I survived that all colonialism and stuff, then my kids don't need to survive that, right? But then they need to fight a civil war. And then they're going to solve the civil war, but then my grandchildren get to actually live a, a proper life. You know what I mean? So there is all this concept that the next generation will continue. That's how Africans think long term. They don't usually think long term around my life being long term and all the stuff that I can do in long term. Um, and with that, it comes that really quick win mindset. And honestly, I don't mind if you start driving Uber so that you can get to a point where you can do what you really love to do, 
right? And that's the point that I believe you're trying to make. It's not, I mean, if you can use those platforms, it's great. The problem starts when you allow those platforms to use you. So you become a slave to whatever they want to say, right? I say a lot to entrepreneurs, like, you don't work for Instagram. <laughs> it's okay for you to take a day off, you know? It's okay to not be the algorithm every day. You don't work for Instagram, you work for yourself. Um, and the way that I at least protected myself against being or feeling trapped with all those platforms in making sure that I have different streams of income that I know that if I don't show up on Instagram, it's not a big deal. I, I can still live with that. Um, so that's one. And two, it's I'm really clear around my purpose. So, and even like when I get like overwhelmed of opportunities, it's very easy for me to say no to what doesn't really is aligned and to say yes to what really is aligned, even though it can be quite inconvenient. So if you start living from your purpose, again, going back to that bigger conversation, a lot of those all of that noise, you are able to distinguish it and see what really fits for you or not. How yeah. does that answer your question, Thorsten? <laughs> yes, it does. But, you know, it's it's difficult. And I think it what is. We're, we're talking about is this, this learning curve. And I know it goes back to this, you know, you become you become a slave to the machine. That's the risk mm -hmm. that, that we're talking about, right? So people think they're, they're, their phones and their iPads, they do things for them. And it's, it's, they, they control them, but no, no, they control us. And you see this now 10 years, 15 years, and they totally control us. Because in the end, it's someone else on the other side of that app, right, that controls you. It's a, it's yeah. a psychologist often. So it's not really fair, these things, um, because there's massive amount of knowledge that works against you. And the, but the only chance, and that's obviously the problem, the only chance to succeed in my model that I want is to be the person who knows the most about that specific problem. But that means you have to download so much knowledge that you spend 20 years just downloading, 30 years of downloading knowledge. And then you generate one little line that makes the world a better place. I guess that's the only, that's the only way to do it. But the risk is that you're just, you know, you're continuously being made addicted to these platforms is pretty high. And mm -hmm. I think we are still on that, that, that transformational phase where people are not really aware of what's going on with these platforms. It has changed a lot the last two years. I think we're in a different ballgame now. It, the, the mind is easily, um, is easily um, adaptable to this. But that, that is obviously the risk that I feel. And, but but the, the huge payoff is obviously that you can come out of um, a, a country, a region, a place where you don't have much in common with the people around you besides a social atmosphere. But there's you have this this global this global opportunity just waiting for you. That's what I'm trying to get at, right? How do we how do we get people to see this for what it is? Yeah. And not when I go back to my hometown, nobody sees the internet. They all just see <laughs> the two Facebook pages, right? And they they, 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 they yeah. meet and they don't they don't care about the internet. I'm like, why on earth are you not seeing the opportunity? They're like, what do you mean? The internet is just for watching Netflix. I'm like, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> but this this is how people think because their mind is not open and I can't open it, right? But yeah. Maybe I can help open it a little bit over time, or maybe I can see, I can identify a trend that opens people. I think this is also, this is the problem in Africa. It's a very local tribal culture and the global opportunity is there, but it's not really evaluated properly. You know, you spoke so much wisdom in that piece, man. So one hand is this notion that entrepreneurs need to be good enough to be able to do something, right? Like I need to accumulate all the knowledge I can to be good enough to do it. And honestly, I'm going to call that BS. A lot of it, we say that it's, it's because we don't want to offer a service that's less than someone deserves. But actually, the main reason why we do that is because we feel we don't feel confident enough over the knowledge that we have, and we don't see that as valuable as it is for other 
for the people. And we have the crazy stories. I mean, my story was around my accent. And for the longest of time, I was like, people are going to hate my accent. Um, I'm going to speak with those American folks. You're going to be like, you sound weird. We don't want to work with you. (laughs) Um, But what I found is actually people, especially from North America and Europe in general, they actually love my accent. And I was like, how right like because for me there was such a a barrier that people wouldn't be able to understand me and stuff but that wasn't true at all so a lot of the times we think that we need to get the next course and the next training for us to start doing something and again that's not true if you can start and i guess it also aligned with lower entrepreneurs they wanted to start big they want to start with the office. They want to start, you know, being on social media and television and all that stuff. But if you're willing to start small and be, I'm just starting out my business, I'm figuring this out as I go, you start realizing that people are way more willing to support you and give you feedback and an input for you to, you know, grow and develop as an entrepreneur. So that's one of the pieces that I feel. You don't by need way, to download way, eight way, hours. Yeah, uh-huh. by the way, I fully agree with you. This is, But this is more motivational <laughs> part. Yes, yeah. you need to get out with what you have and not wait to make it perfect. I fully agree with you. Yeah. Um, but in order to survive the economics in that marketplace that I have in mind, you, yeah. there's, there's, there's no room for two people who are doing the same thing. There's one person that's being chosen. And this is the person that does it for the least amount of money and the most elegant way. It might be the user interface. Like Airbnb, a lot of people say, well, we had VRBO 20 years earlier. What's special about Airbnb? Well, it's the user interface in the marketing, right? And now it's also obviously the network yeah. effects because you have the most properties. Can I challenge you that a lot of it comes from, uh, it really is a scarcity mindset when we think that opportunities are limited. And if, you know, if I take a place, this is someone that someone needs to lose that place for me to take it, which it is true in some certain, you know, into a certain degree, you know, uh, if I have $20, I can either pay you or the other guy for the same product that costs $20, which in part is true. But to me, the real issue here, the real problem is when we think that I cannot even start because I'm not good enough. I'm saying that you can start with what you have and you still you still have a development plan for yourself. You know, the way you allow you to keep learning and keep growing. And I know it can be quite crazy, but you want to survive in business. And I guess that's your point. You want to survive in business forever if you're only focused on being, doing business as usual. You need to cater for business of tomorrow. And doing those downloads and opening up for new experiences is how you get it. But two is if you acknowledge what makes you unique as an entrepreneur and you bring that to your business, you realize that there will people they will buy from you because it's you and that's why you see like a lot of talk in social media around focus on your niche focus on your niche focus on your niche because if you have a clear niche a niche is not just your customer segment is your customer segment plus your offer plus what you do for them for your customer segment you realize that well i can help entrepreneurs they are starting out when they reach their five million mark I'm not the guy to help them out. Then I need to send them to someone else. You know what I mean? So there is opportunity for almost everyone, really. It's a matter of you understanding where do you fit in and that personal development and business development and growth really matters. But don't allow that to stop you from starting. Start and then learn what you need to learn on because it's also a huge mistake that people make. When you're starting out, you assume you might need all those different skills that when you are doing your business, you realize that people are not valuing all those stuff you thought you, you know, they will value. Yeah. So there is that balance, that dance that I believe we, we should master as entrepreneurs. 
I, I agree. Obviously, you you, you got to find um, a jumping off point and then you go to where you become that that one singular solution. But what, what, what I think is important is all these things are not a zero-sum game, right? So every yeah. single solution that helps us think about Google, how, how much more productive we are, and we can do things we could never dream of without the original Google search engine. So every single one of this innovation doesn't have to be a technical innovation necessarily. It can be any kind of innovation. Those yep. are adding to the game, and that's how this, it's, it's, a, it's a completely non-zero-sum game. What that means is everyone who participates helps everyone make more money. That's the, that's the funny part of this economy. And uh, so as more people do this dance, as more people have a chance to make more money with what they are already doing right now, but I mean, one day it will become outdated, and then they have to jump to the next model. Right? So I think we'll... And let me just add there, Thorsten. Yeah. Uh, I think as an entrepreneur, you should also ditch the belief that you have to do everything by yourself. And I believe you are really bringing that point that be open to collaborate with other people. You know, like I have programs that sell for $10,000 and I'm not, I don't do 100% of the work. I work with other people that can add value way better than I can. And that specific unique combination that I have with them, it's so unique, as you're mentioning, that makes people to buy it. So you don't feel like you have to be the only one coming in with the innovation and with solutions. You can always find great partners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we take this a little further, so let's assume um, I work with an incubator, you work with Idea Lab, I work with an incubator yeah. here um, in the US, but it doesn't really matter. It can be, can be, can be a location independent. How would you go about knowing what you know in a particular case um, in, in, in Africa, in Mozambique, but how would you go about saying, what we just talked about, how do we, how do we bring this into a reality, obviously in a very, very small portion but how do we create that mindset fostering kind of set of incentives, right? How do we go about, will we, we describe something that happens with or without us? Like we don't, yeah. we, we don't, we are not needed. We are just seeing it happening, right? We, we, we were just spectators for this digital revolution. But if we want to make money from this, from this conviction, how would uh -huh. you go about it? Maybe that's part of what IDLab already does. Yeah, it is part of what IDLab does. It's part of Orange Corners incubation that I managed does and it's part of what my business does right now so the first thing i say is it actually uh, step zero will be get clarity around the stakeholders involved you know especially if you're talking about entrepreneurship ecosystem you have from you know academia research uh, institutions the government entrepreneurs uh, banks financial institutions all that all those folks you need to understand who they are first in the ecosystem you're trying to operate step number two is to identify the gaps within the ecosystem and just to give you a context um the incubator we launched in mozambique orange corners it, it already happened in south africa they had three uh, business centers here and part of my work was to get the experience they had, tailor it to the Mozambican market and create something that the Mozambican market was needing. But we did it in a way that was so beautiful, I guess, that they invited us to train uh, program managers from Angola, Sudan, um, to replicate that Orange Corners concept within their countries. And the way we did it wasn't by just showing them what we've done, but it's by giving them the framework that I'm giving you partly right now. So get clarity around the stakeholders, then the gap within the ecosystem. And then you have to decide what is gonna be your role. And that's key, like your unique selling point, what can you bring to the table in that ecosystem that no one else can? Because you can identify three to four gaps and realize that you are actually only good at fixing half of one gap. <laughs> so focus on that. And the yeah. third point, it will be get a local partner. Uh, I mean, 
I, I never heard of a program that was successful in a foreign country that was implemented by foreigners without having local people, without having local people that can even understand the context and can bring that level of empathy that only a local person means. And when I say local, it's not just, um, you know, uh, Julio from Mozambique. It's like, if you're doing something with women, I'm not going to be your guy 100% because I'm a guy. There is a level that they will never fully empathize with me. 50% only. For you. At least, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, and I can, I can even push it to 50%. 70. Yeah, yeah, I can put like to right. 70% to say like, you know what? I'm a guy, so I can be your father. I can be your brother. I can be your son. So I can give you three perspectives, so 70%. But there is a point... I won't make it. So have the local point yeah. in touch. Well, well, I'm asking also specifically, we have this huge bubble in early stage investing in many uh -huh. parts of the world, especially in the US. And you have tons of incubators, seed funds, and you know they, they grill you all day about what is your USP? What do you read? Well, why, why should we invest in you? Oh, that's all good, right? They should do that. That's perfect. Yeah. And then you ask, uh, you, you turn around the question and say, why, why would I want you guys to invest in my business? And they say, yeah, it's about the network effect. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Make it more and more concrete for me, right? And they say, yeah, well, we've been doing this for 10 years. I'm like, that's nice, right? But I've been doing this for 20 years. Well, whatever the story <laughs> is, right? So this makes yeah. a difference. Um, maybe that's even a, a bad thing. Track record is not, as we say, the, the, the past results don't predict the future results. What I'm trying mm -hmm. to say is, the investor USP, and in the end, it's the valuation to me, right? So you pay me the highest price, so you're my guy. If, if, you, if you know how to sell a company to Sequoia, that's even better. Or to the, a lot of your companies go IPO, that's also a selling point. But in the end, the price is very, very few points where an incubator or a seed fund or any VC fund really has much of a USP to deliver beyond the valuation. Like, they mm -hmm. want to make it sound differently. And we had Benjamin here on the, on the podcast, and he was very 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 outspoken about this but if i keep thinking about this in the end valuation is really the most important part you give me more money for for my future project that's great yeah. and you're my guy otherwise you know probably not and <laughs> but that's weird right because if you do this with, with startups it's the opposite it's strange but, it, but it it's is. probably good that way I mean, I have a confession. I run the incubator for two years and now uh, another colleague is running it because I'm running my business. And for the two years, we didn't offer any entrepreneurs sort of cash or funding or cash flow or, you know, overdraft or anything like that. So I think uh, a huge change of mindset is happening, even within the U.S., is realizing that sometimes too much money can actually cripple the business. Because yeah. people just spend on stuff that doesn't really matter and they don't really understand the, the concept. And what's worse is that that takes the chance of the entrepreneur to win the right to be in the market. And for me, that's when you reach a point where you are way past break-even as an entrepreneur and you understand that as is, you can actually survive off of that business. And you only need funding to accelerate your growth over something that has been already been validated, tested, and improved. I mean, that's the key for me when um, finance come through. But then investment in cash, uh, it's not the only type of investment entrepreneurs need. Speaking from experience, you know, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in Africa, they don't have support from their families to thrill the entrepreneurial journey. You know, being an entrepreneur is not something as desirable as it is in the US, as it is in Mozambique or in other African countries, especially for the older generations. So just having, you know, some sort of um, certification or accreditation or just association. I remember when I won that award that you mentioned, 
I had entrepreneurs come in with their families and be like, I told you, I know one of the hundred most influential young Africans. I'm doing something right. And just that changed their entire life, uh, you know, family life situation. Because now their parents are actually supporting them as entrepreneurs. So there is a lot of psychological support entrepreneurs need, you know, that validation and reassuring that they're doing the right thing by trying to change the world. That's one of them. Um, there is a lot of things around access to markets. And I, I fight every day around, you know, the main issue in Africa is just access to markets and not even funding to begin with. But it's just really presenting an entrepreneur with a client that they can get a chance to try their products, experiment, improve on them. So when they get to the next client, they won't be making the same mistake they were doing beforehand. And if you think about holistically about supporting entrepreneurs, you realize that funding comes in in a very specific moment to just break a cycle that entrepreneur is at, but never as a, you know, an initiator of movement, is an accelerator of breakthrough, if that makes sense. It's like technology, yeah. you know? It makes, well, yes, I, I, I fully, fully understand where you're coming from, but the reality is a little bit, you know, think about... Different, yeah. Think about, I, I, I have my children go to a very good school here in Silicon Valley. And it's, it's, there's so much money spent on these kids. I mean, on average, for instance, New York State spends $30,000 a year on every student. That includes, you know, primary education. Wow. $30,000 per student. It's a massive amount of money that mostly goes into administration. Whatever it actually goes to, nobody really knows. So nobody really knows. <laughs> absolutely not needed. I mean, even 3000 is actually pretty high. Nowadays, building costs, and I mean, this is certain you have to have competitive salaries. I understand there is a certain limit to this. What I'm trying to say is, if you grow up in that environment where everything is already cared for, you don't strive, mm. you don't improve, you don't, you don't, you don't find that edge that's necessary to an extent to come up with the best solution on the planet, right? We go back to this unique angle, and there is a space. There's enough space for nine billion to come up with something that's unique and yeah. best on the planet. So, or a hundred billion. It doesn't matter how many billions of people and AIs people have for this. Um, but if you if you if you come go to an elementary school in Ethiopia, right? You go in a little mm -hmm. village in Ethiopia, or in Mozambique, you know, you basically all you have is your phone. But and you have desperate conditions. But sometimes I feel maybe that's better because you have you you get this desperation, you get this hunger, literally often, unfortunately, but also this intellectual yeah. hunger. But you have the same access, you have the same mobile phone, the same YouTube videos, you can watch the same MIT courses. Maybe that's actually better. That's what's going on in my mind. Now, maybe I'm crazy, you know, it's, <laughs> it's maybe just me. But sometimes I feel maybe this should be better because in my own experience, and that's my own experience growing up in, in you know, communist Eastern Germany, kind of like yeah. ex-communist Mozambique. Yeah. That definitely helped me. I feel it helped me this experience. And I didn't have to go for 40 years. That would be a different story. But for five years of that experience, mm -hmm. or a little bit of consci consciousness, <laughs> I mean, you know, I was a kid, obviously. But still, it helped me a little bit to see, okay, this is an alternative reality, and that could be really shitty, so you better get your stuff together. And uh, I don't know, maybe that's better than being, okay, I'm already so rich and so great, but I haven't done anything for it, right? But as a kid, you don't uh -huh. know that. You think everything, everything you do is because of you, because you're so great. Yeah. So can I challenge that? And yeah, course, this please. was my personal belief for many years, that entrepreneurs needed actually i believe that successful people need the struggle to thrive and while in part you do need to go through a moment where you need to redefine who you are and how you want to show up that doesn't necessarily need to be what people what other people will consider struggle right remember everyone struggles with a different thing in a certain point of their life regardless if it is financial struggle 
um, mental struggle, emotional struggle, whatever the struggle it is. So that's the first point. And I found, and it's actually psychologists research around it. People show up today, not based on their past experience, but based on what they believe is possible around the future. And the example they give is like, you know, when a woman was going to a date, men too, they, they can shave, you know, but they only shave because they're going to the date tomorrow, not because they had a date before. You know what I mean? So human beings, they're way more wired to show up today as they believe the future will be. Yeah, so if you, right, so yeah. if you have an entrepreneur that is struggling in Mozambique or wherever in Southeast Asia or wherever in the world, if they don't have a belief that the future can be better, and if they can actually contribute or participate in the happening of their future, they don't gonna change. And the same thing happens with people who are coming from more wealthy backgrounds. If their belief is that they're gonna be always wealthy and they have, they don't need to do anything about it, they won't change, you know? And it's actually, yeah. it's more easy, more easily they will go to bankruptcy that they're going to keep the money in the family. And the whole study around generational wealth and stuff. But my point is, it's not about the past. It's about what you believe is possible in the future and your role in it. That's what really determines how we show up today. I think that's, I, I would say <laughs> both things are very important. But I I'll, yeah. I mean, I fully I fully agree with that point that your, your today's action are really determined by your prediction for the near-term future. A lot of people say this is the next two years, uh, differs from most people, but this is something yeah, that people feel different. like they have a, a handle on, right? And uh, the next 20 years, people are like, oh, well, there's too much going on, too many variables outside. Um, you never know what happens. You know, there's COVID, nobody really knows. What, it could have had a great That's impact true. or no impact. And it had, I'd say, medium impact. But depending on what business you run, mm -hmm. might have had a devastating impact or, or, or really positive That's impact true. for you, right? It just changed things around. Um, yeah. When you, well, let, let's go, let's zoom out a little bit and go a little bit to the macro perspective. When you see okay. countries that, are being traded as great places for, for innovations to come out of. It's in, in Africa, we usually see immediately South Africa, Nigeria, uh -huh. Kenya. Yeah. And then the list gets a little thinner. Um, people are like, Tanzania was great. And there's a lot of stuff that probably more infrastructure investments that didn't go the way they everyone yeah. was hoping. But then the list gets really thin. Um, there isn't on everyone everyone's mind, there's Ghana, um, which is still, certainly still on the list, and there's Mozambique. But there's what about 50 countries in Africa? Why is the list so thin? Why, why do you think is yeah. that still the case? And do you think it will? What ranking will we see? And what impact will we see over the next yeah. 10 years? Maybe. I mean, the first thing I would really like people to get it is that there is a lot of political uh, interest when. UN builds those rankings because usually it's the you know entrepreneurship index or you know quality of life and stuff like that. There's a lot, and I mean a lot of political interest. And I can give you even a Mozambican example. So before 2019, actually 18 to 19, Mozambique went low in every index you can find around investment and entrepreneurship in business. Once they realized how much money they were losing over the investment they were having in the north of my country. Like from, I'd like really like from one day to the other, Mozambique went up on the ranks, but nothing changed. <laughs> I can, I promise you nothing changed. So that's one thing you should be aware of. Everyone's gaming the statistics. Everyone's gaming the statistics to play to their interests, right? Again, sure. it's that conversation around people in position of power. They are not feeling powerful. Uh, and that's creating all those cascading effects in other people's life. That's one. And two is 
even if you just talk with your business friends or just friends in general, people will all you give will always give you a perspective on what they feel it's good or bad for you, right? So in my example, uh, the first time I heard about Dubai, it was one of my friends who told me like, you should never go to Dubai. It's like all plastic, all those buildings, like they're empty, half of them. There's nothing for you there. So I went to Bahrain. I, I told you the story at first. It's in the Middle East. And then I went to Dubai. I made so a much amazing connection, so many amazing connections and actually struck some good deals. And I actually found out there is a whole side of the Middle East that people don't show up in terms of research, as you mentioned, from Israel and stuff, you know, from environment and all this, the things is not being communicated. So there is always this, this sort of like personal filter that people put on when they give you recommendation about a place or um, if you should go or not go to a place. And I always say, if you can see by yourself, that's good. If you can't, you can Google on YouTube. You can see videos, you know, on how Mozambique looks like, how Tanzania looks like. And if you could make a connection with someone in that country and ask the person their perspective on it, at least you have more options to build your own opinion around a place. And it really doesn't matter if it is, you know, just a, a town next to yours or whatever, but just understand that and understand that everyone will give you feedback from when they are coming from and what is in their best interest. And if you're willing to challenge that, I mean, there are amazing opportunities waiting for you. Like a hundred percent, you might need some work. And I especially think with the case in Africa is that mainly the the main language in the UN is English. So they always write English speaking countries first and then French and then Portuguese ones. So there is already that filter. But I mean, if you are in America or whatever, and you're willing to learn Portuguese or French, you know, what's stopping you? <laughs> yeah. There's Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, there's something. Yeah. I think it's, there's a little more to this. I, I, I fully agree with you that certainly um, the, the view on the ground often differs, and this is just statistics. Uh, I, I'm with you. But I think there is, once we, if, if we force ourselves to take a macro view, there is something to, to that, um, how, I maybe mean, it's not always, it's certainly not always justified, but as the likeliness, for instance, how to move money in and out in South Africa is extremely easy, right? You won't have yeah. any trouble. Um, the currency exchange rate might change a little bit. Uh, that's obviously a risk. Every day. But then you go, I don't know, Malawi, and it's it gets yeah. way more tricky to move certain amounts of money in and out. It's possible, certainly, but you, you've got to talk to some government officials to, to get big money um, in and out, and they will want their cut. Is it 1%? Is it 10%? You will find out, right? And so yeah. it's, 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 getting, it's just getting harder. It adds additional layers of bureaucracy to it. Now you can choose a business where you don't have that problem, right? So if it's just digital businesses, you don't have to move a ton of money around. And you can have your credit card processing done in Hong Kong or wherever, right? Or Singapore. So you don't have that problem. Um, but, and there's also the same, same amount of, you know, infrastructure is often a big deal. Can you rely? It's basically yeah. a cheap resource you're using. We, we're thinking of infrastructure as well, like God-given thing. No, it's a cheap resource that someone else built and you can just use it for free, right? That's what roads yeah. basically are. And if they don't exist, then we'll only have to change your business model or build your own infrastructure. You notice with mining, mining yeah. corporations usually have, and they're used to building their own infrastructure. So they put in a train or they put in a road because otherwise they can't get it out. And that's, that's already yeah. baked into the cake. So um, this talk about infrastructure, I think is a little self-serving sometimes because a taxpayer paid for it. And why they did it, well, that's often not so clear, right? Because the government decided it's a good idea. <laughs> generally it is, but it's not always a good idea to build huge infrastructure pro projects, right? Um, yeah, not at all. We call them white elephants in Mozambique. 
Yes. You know, it's, it, there's a big gulf um, between what's needed and what's being built. And that's ridiculous. There's, there's this airport in Sri Lanka. I don't know if you've seen this. They built a second airport. And, uh, uh-huh. But nobody wants to fly there because literally there's no people around. There's no roads leading there. So they have elephants from the jungle going on the runway. So they, it's literally a white <laughs> elephant project. Right? Yeah, uh, And we have so many stories like that in Mozambique. Like fully fledged, less top of the, you know, top of the line buildings that's like in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's obviously you're interesting. That's government bureaucracy. So, but well, well, kind of the last thing I wanted to ask you, and maybe you're very bullish about this, is crowdfunding, right? So, crowdfunding mm-hmm. kind of gives us this idea that we, we and I had Darren Marble on, um, and we talked about um, basically it's, it, you're obviously blind to what's going on. And I think Pioneer works a little bit like this too, do it's not directly crowdfunded. It's, it's a big pool of money that goes into it. So you only focus, and that's, that used to be the idea, right? So we, when we talk about the stereotypes and, and, and discounts and people say, when you say, well, we wanna, your money goes to Nigeria and say, well, is it a donation? They say, no, 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 it's a profit making money. And you're like, oh, how do I ever get that money out, right? So, so <laughs> assume I make a ton of money. So there's immediate hesitation for good reason, I feel, right? Some of this yeah. is, is stereotyping, but some of this is real. I mean, it's tricky. So what crowdfunding offers is basically, it gives you this, this bias-free filter. You see the investment opportunity, do you either say thumbs up or down and you put a little bit of money to it because you like it emotionally or because you think this is trending. Well, whatever reason yeah. you have to put $100 into this business, it, it could be a boon. But when I see crowdfunding that, that raise, well, noticeable amounts of money, it's, we're, we're back to, the, to mostly U.S. businesses, right? Because, again, mm-hmm. there's certain early adopter advantages that are very tricky to replicate in other locations. But do you think crowdfunding is kind of a bit of the solution to the problem, especially for Mozambique? Even to my own surprise, the answer is yes. So I actually have an example. So last week I was speaking with another comedian. So I was... The reason why I'm bringing all those comedic examples is that I've been working with them um, for the last few weeks, so I have them fresh in mind. But there is this comedian in Mozambique um, that started to make... So the news in Mozambique can be quite comic, right? really like quite comic because you have different accents and people say stuff that really doesn't make sense. So he like basically, he impersonates them on funny videos on YouTube and in social media. And then one guy, one time, I think people, he, I don't know what happened, but he said like, stop just liking my videos. Ask me for my M-Pesa number so that you can send me money about it. And he started crowdfunding like that. And people really pay every time he posts something, people pay. And if you stop to think about it, business models that operates with only fans, for instance, it's pretty much the same concept, but people pay you so that you show up something, right? It could be you making a fun video or something else. Um, but I, I'm seeing more, especially with Africa, when it's easy to grow with economies of scale, especially if you go with digital content that, you know, you just produce it one and just share it. Um, it's quite, it's quite uh, an interesting funding opportunity. I'll say that the, the other side of the coin is that there is no real legislation for registered businesses to receive sponsorship with those specific words. So you can change it as really payment for views. If you change that, you can receive that money legally. Again, there are a few, um, and I guess it's also one of- stock. Are you getting any stock? No, 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 we don't get any stock. It's pretty much like crowdfunding. You just give the money for- But you could buy, um, say, a Nigerian startup that issues shares. That wouldn't be a problem, Mm -hmm. right? It's not something you're prohibited from as a consumer. 
no, no, no. That's not, it was illegal yeah. in the U.S. for the longest time. No, it's... yeah, no, that's not a problem. You can you can list your company in the um, we'll call it the the value exchange market. You can list your company. People can buy shares. Um, that's not a problem. That's not a problem. I guess the main problem with um, early investment, it's it's not tailored to startups, and I think that's sort of everywhere. You know. Yeah. Uh, the, the deadlines are not real. Uh, startups usually like the support and access to market so they can pay back the money and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the question is, you know, with, with crowdfunding, it's kind of in between I make a donation, you know, Kiva. And yeah. uh, on the other hand, it's I put my money in a retirement fund that maybe also allocates a little bit to venture capital. You know, there's always mm. like a mixed mix allocation. Well, with crowdfunding, you're somewhere in between. You're like, hmm, I just... I, I, I know I will lose this money, but maybe I make a lot of money back. And uh, But then you want like a legal system that at least a little bit enforces it. In the end, there's no full enforcement. Everybody knows that. Um, so if the company yeah. does make it or if it gets drawn out in legal battles, then there's there's no profits to be harvested. That's just the way it is. But you, you kind of want that idea that you bought 0.11% of that company. So you get 0.11% when it goes IPO. For instance, well, there's dilution, there's more to it, but I think that's what people want. And that's, mm. it, it's more a cultural thing, right? Than a legal, you can't, you can legally enforce it, but obviously this is a little shaky. You want the culture to support this and you want the trust of a marketplace or an institution. Yeah. And my experience is that different African countries, they're sort of keeping up with all the financial changes differently. So again, in Mozambique, there's always a relation around crowdfunding, even around social businesses. So we still get taxed as a regular business will do. Um, so there are those things. And my understanding is that the government is sort of trying, is starting to listen to the startups and entrepreneurs. Um, they're even making some tests, like small ones. But if I have to like bet, it's a long short, it's a long-term um, shot. It's a long range shot. Um, with that, but there is always there are ways that you can navigate to those maps. But you need to probably have the local um, the local expertise to help you out in any African country, really. The same thing to Malawi, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, even in Tunisia. <laughs> even though it's white Africa, right? But it's still in there, um, you have those challenges. Yeah, Tunisia is very special. Uh, I actually like Tunisia a lot um, as a, as a as a traveler. It's a great place. It's a great value. Um, I think they have the cheapest airport taxes I've ever seen. It's like $2 and they get you anywhere in, the, I don't know, 60 miles radius. It's, it's amazing. Tunisia is really amazing. And it's even like when we speak about Africa, it's so interesting how Southern Africa is different from Eastern Africa and it's different from Western Africa and it's different from Northern Africa. Yeah. Um, and it's still the same continent. It needs more exposure. You know, it needs more exposure on all levels, I feel. Hopefully. But that's something... That I guess it's not just Africa, right? It feels like the United States sort of rules communication in the planet and exposure in the planet. Um, but there, again, there's a lot. I mean, you travel a lot, you know this. Um, but there's a lot of beautiful and amazing stuff happening in Africa that you have no idea. Now, like local people with almost nothing doing so much for their community, that you just be like, how can the world not know about this? Yeah. Well. In the end, it's, you know, the attention economy, obviously, we have the same problem we talked about earlier. You have to find this unique niche and then you have to keep scaling it. And yes, it's a, it's a question of money. And um, that is, there's a part of capitalist power structure involved. Let's put it this way. Yeah. But it's really, when we talk about the informationalism, to use that term that Alexander coined, um, it's, it's really, you if you have... Sooner or later, and I think this is definitely true, sooner or later, if you have something interesting enough, 
then it will get global scale. And it doesn't really matter where you start from. Yes, is it easy in English? Yes, it is easier in, in, in the US. But think about Gangnam Style is an exception. But just think about it. The most watched video of all times, right? Comes in a That's language true. that nobody speaks. Um, it's funny, but it looks like any other video out there. It's an earworm, <laughs> yes, but there's so many. And it just makes it, right? So long-term, I guess, this core innovation, whatever that innovation is, will win. And I think it's... I think it's a core power law of, of, of informationalism um, that this is this holds true. Now, obviously, cancel culture is a problem, but you can always go to another platform, right? And then you might get canceled again, but <laughs> you can build your own platform, you know, think about the, uh, the Twitter-like platform that we have here. Yeah, but it also speaks about you using more decentralized platforms, you know, like Telegram, um, WhatsApp. If you use WeChat from China as well, it decentralized to an extent to a certain government, I guess. It's the best way to put it in. Um, but there's also something around you as an entrepreneur being comfortable in showing up for all that visibility that you want. And like 50, no, 60% of the clients I work with, uh, specifically on their exposure component, the main drawback for they don't having the exposure is that they're not comfortable with what they might entice. There is a huge failure of success and failure of failure. You know, like I do put all this work and doesn't work out or what if this actually works out? Then my life changes forever. Um, so you should know they fail to take action because of all that fear of access. Yeah. Well, the, the, I feel all the games we play with each other, these social games, they're rigged, right? They're all rigged in someone's favor. You just need to find out, are they rigged in your favor, potentially, or in someone else's favor? And then that's it. But that's true for any anything we do in life. Right? If, it, if you think of life as a real-world simulation and everyone plays these roles... That you don't even know why yeah. you play it. You could just snap out of the role, but then people look at you crazy and say, oh, no, 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 I can't do it. They obviously know it's a role, but they don't want to get out of it. They are rigged in their favor. Like think about an airport gate agent, right? They, they have all the power to let you on this flight or not, and they really use that power. Um, they make sure that they're yeah. the boss. And uh, that's why they show up at work. They don't show up because you get paid whatever, $5 an hour, $15 an hour. They, they, they want to exercise that power and get off on it, which is great, right? But you have to find a life, this place, for an airport agent, it's their way of finding a game that's rigged in their favor, at least emotionally. And you just have to find one that's rigged in your favor. Um, it takes a while. And uh, it's online the same you problem know, as offline. It is. And if I can make a recommendation, a book that, actually two books, they really change my perspective on systems. So the first one is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. I believe it's his name. Yeah. And what really struck me is that he really said what you're saying. Like, there is always a system. You need to figure it out how the system works. And then you get to choose, like, are you going to play with the system? Are you going to play the system? Or are you going to destroy the system completely? So that's super key. And the second book is The Good to Great from Jim Collins. And literally speaks about you having that unique selling point, that unique value proposition. But it's not just what you are good at, it's also what the world needs and why you can be the best at doing, as you're mentioning, and doing that in a way that feels good for you and your team as you're growing your company. Um, and like there's tons of research around it, so I highly recommend you checking out those books if you haven't already. Yeah, Red Outlier, I, I haven't read uh, Jim Collins, right? That's the second book yeah. you mentioned. I, yeah. I gotta look that up. That sounds, that sounds interesting. Well, yeah, I'm, cool. I'm running out of time. Thanks for coming on, there. <laughs> that, that was awesome. That was a great chat. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking the time. I, I love it. I love it. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Looking forward to next time. Sure. Well, yeah, take it easy. Talk soon. Talk soon. Bye-bye.